seconds flat. Give me up. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends. This is mile 136 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Phil and I are back from California and waving the white flag of the surrender. Phil, almost a week post-race. How's the body feeling? Considering how bad I beat you, it's really feeling... (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that later, though. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't resist, Travis. All it took was a finish, buddy. That was <laughs> that was all you needed. You so you're fe- coming, and you just gave up. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So you feeling pretty good? Feeling pretty good. Let's see. The race was on Sunday. Monday was hurting, getting around a little bit. Tuesday yeah. Tuesday was at the office, being on my feet all day. But Wednesday started started walking around almost normally, and thinking I'm about ready to get back and get out and go for a jog, which means. Another couple days. Yeah, I'm in about the same place. Monday, you looked like you had just gotten off a a long horse ride. Oh, that's how I felt. (laughs) When we were walking around town. The key here, bud, is just run two-thirds of the race like I did, and then you bounce back much more quickly. Oh, you were ready to go for a jog Monday morning. Shoot. Uh, Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Just really fatigued, which is a a theme that we will come back to because that is a before, during, and after race thing that clearly impacted my performance. But uh, before we examine our races and more significantly, the the lessons learned and to be applied in the future, let's start out with more encouraging and exciting news elsewhere in the world of running. First, Phil, let's go Australian. What? Oh, I was hoping you'd start here. Perfect. What a weekend for the Aussies. Uh, both national marathon records fell as Brett Robinson ran 207.31 in the men's only elite marathon at Fukuoka. Knocks off Rob DiCostello's. Yeah, that's a nearly nearly 40-year-old Australian record from Deke. Deke ran that mark at Boston in 1986. That's incredible. That mark comes from Boston, especially as deep as Australian distance running is now. Yeah, that adds a wrinkle, doesn't it? That he did it at Boston, Uh 207.51. Another layer into how good that was, given it's way before the technology and training of this era. To your point about how good Australian distance running has has been, Perhaps that hasn't been marathon-centric since uh, That's probably true. It's more kind of the middle distances that are really solid right now. That's right. In today's world, it's it's Stewie McSwain, a previous generation in between he and DiCostella. It's a Craig Mottram, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the closest competitor, and he did this all across the board, that would be uh, Steve Monaghetti. Uh, speaking of which, did you see what Steve Monaghetti did last week? Oh, my gosh. I... 
can only hope I could come anywhere near that at this age. My slash is 60 plus. <laughs> now in his 60s, he laid down a 15-52-5K. That is scorching. Hey, his fartlek works, people. That's right. Just do the Monogetti fartlek. Yes, I, it's good for me to know that my present 5K shape, I'm frankly taking this as a positive, that my present 5K shape is approximately what Steve Monaghetti's doing in his 60s. That you got to hold it for a couple more decades. I know. If I can just hang on. So yeah, it, Deeks did that in 86. So it was a now just on the edge of 37-year-old record. Uh, hey, also, Phil, tangential. What a year that was in Boston. Okay, Deeks is blazing to an Australian record. Well, right down the street at the Old Garden, the 85-86 Celtics were in the playoffs, wrapping up probably, well, possibly at least, I'll say probably, the greatest season in NBA history. I think they were 40-1 and at home that season. Only you would know that's sad. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. I, we'll, we'll have the double check me, people. I'm sure I'll get an email on this. Okay, let's refocus. Call with a, an update on the basketball history for us. <laughs> yes. Shortly after Robin, Robinson's record run, uh, Sinead Diver ran 2.21.34 for the Australian women's national record and also a master's world record. She At 45 is, years old. That yes. Is she is 45 and didn't get into competitive running until her 30s. So there's still hope for us, Phil. There's still hope. We also had big cross-country action uh, last weekend in Austin, Texas at the Sound Running Cross Champs. And some big names were on hand. Your men's winner was Edwin Kurgot. And Alicia Monson took the crown for the women. Ozzie Myler, while we're on Ozzie's, Ollie Hoare went out lightning fast for the first mile in the men's race. I was not watching the yeah, runners gap on that whole group going out. Didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have the, the coverage on. I was actually just in front of my computer watching live splits when they hit the timing mat and he got out in something like four uh, thirty and built a yeah. near, nearly seven second lead at that first timing mat. Ultimately he faded down the stretch. Kerr got closed with vigor for the win but Ollie still finished third. And when you combine that with his teammates, uh, Yared Nagus, Morgan McDonald, and Jordy Beamish, uh, they took spots two through five and that won the team title for on athletics. It's cool to see some competitive cross country running in those ranks, though. And those yeah. guys are coming off of track seasons, but still to jump in a heated cross country race where they're just throwing down the race has been so much fun to watch. Agreed. Uh, the potential for world athletics points, I believe, was one of the big draws to the depth of this, this field. But in particular, in that men's race, this was super deep with a lot of the top runners. I am not surprised we saw guys like Ollie Hoare, Morgan McDonald, Jordy Beamish, the Aussies and the Kiwis, uh, because coming up of as a reminder, Euro cross champs are this Sunday. So Jakob Ingebrigtsen will be defending his title. But those uh, races are just stepping stones on the path to World Cross Champs 2023. And that's at Bathurst, Australia in February. I know the Aussies see this as a once-in-generation opportunity to have World Cross on their home turf. 
have you seen the names that they put on that course? Yeah. So the course is fantastic. What they have done is created uh, essentially different pieces of the Australian uh, geographic setting and uh -huh. applied them into the course. So there's actually a phase of the course in a vineyard where yep. run runners will have multiple options, almost like three separate shoots on a slight uphill where they can try to make a move. It'll all be running the same distance, but they'll be separated that way. But yeah, I believe there's a Bondi beach reference and like a kangaroo uh, reference and a crocodile reference. Yeah. So a little taste of all things Australian and in particular in that four by two K mixed relay, the Aussies have a great shot to win. So it seems that they're going all in on it to rewind a bit back to Austin the women's race uh, did not have the team depth that the men's did, but it was the upstart Puma elite group that got the victory in the smaller women's field. And then at the race we attended, uh, we did not win. Futsum Zinasalasi was your <laughs> men's U.S. marathon champion, Paige Stoner. Who disappointed, Travis? Uh, disappointed in us? Yes. Yeah, I think well, they're going for us to win. Uh, frankly, they should be disappointed. If, if, <laughs> I'm disappointed in myself. If there had been live footage of us on the course, they'd be even more disappointed in what they would have seen. <laughs> Don't go look at the pictures from the race. Yes, it is not please, please, I deleted that link right away. <laughs> Paige Stoner, to finish that thought, won the marathon championship for the women. I'll admit, my race picks are often lousy. I tend to swing for the fences. Mm -hmm. But let me pat myself on the back for a minute here, Phil. I you nailed this. Yes. I had Paige Stoner in the women's race, and she set a new course record. Then on the men's side, I went off the top of the board a little bit and said, keep an eye on Josh Thompson and Joel Reichow. And what did those gentlemen do? They went second and third, respectively. If only I could have raced this one like I predicted it, it would have been a heck of a weekend. Well, your race went about like my pick for the men's leader who pulled off the course shortly around mile 16 or 17. Yeah, I actually made it slightly farther than him. So right. I, I got that going for me. I ran farther than you, Drotty. Uh, <laughs> we'll come back to CIM and share our experiences in our final segment. Phil. Anything else from the past week in racing that you'd like to cover? The one thing that I don't think we highlighted, you talked about Sinead Diver at Valencia, and but just the fast times overall with Kelvin Kipton, who ran 201.53, mm -hmm. the fastest debut ever, and I think what the fourth fastest in history. That's um, right. He, he's the third fastest person because... Kipchoge, uh, okay. Kipchoge has multiple. And then the, the women's marathon at Valencia as well with, I'm going to butcher this name, but Amane Barisa, who ran 214.58, mm -hmm. shortly off of the women's world record, which would have been contested had the Pacers stayed with her. Yeah, that's an interesting plot twist, right? The, the Pacers went with the second eventual second place finisher yep. and the debutante, uh, let's him bet G'day, who she also had the fastest debut in history. That's that's correct. Yeah, at, at 216 plus. And so across the board, the times were blazing fast. You have a, a pancake flat course, really good weather, incredible depth 
Valencia continues to assert itself in both its half marathon that it hosts and its marathon as one of the premier events in the world. I would suggest with Abbott World Marathon Majors devaluing elite performances this past year and moving forward, Valencia could and perhaps should become on par with London, Berlin, etc., as the premier events in the world. And frankly, it's deeper than London. London is really top heavy. London does a great job in that first handful. But the depth of field at Valencia, uh, Phil, I don't know if you saw any of the finish line footage, but the waves of people coming in at 225, 230, 235, 240, it was remarkable. It's like what you would see at Boston at right around three hours or three and a half hours, but it was pushed up 30, 40 minutes faster (laughs) than that. And from my understanding, this is not a lottery race. It's a sign up early and you're in race. So if anybody's looking for an Uber fast one next December in Spain, maybe Valencia is your tickets. You're right. I I got so worked up about the Australian uh, <laughs> records and went off off track there. We we left out the significance of just a lightning fast race, one of the best of the year. Yeah, uh, the, huge debuts. Yeah, yeah, huge debuts. All right, Phil. Now on to my review of the Asics Super Blast. I am showing it to you in the screen right now. Oh, that is beefy. Yes, it is. It's a big boy. We'll talk about yeah. that more. This is the ASICs entry into the growing super max cushion category. And it separates itself from much of that category by combining max cushion. As Phil said, when you look at it, it looks beefy, but it combines that with minimal weight. Let's start with the specs. In a sample size nine, this weighs in at about 8.4 ounces, which would put it at the light end even among just your regular daily trainers. That's impressive. Yeah, that's a significant factor here. Remember, it's a high cushion and high stack shoe. Uh, So the heel measures in at approximately 45 millimeters and the forefoot at 37 millimeters, giving you an eight mil offset, which is now trending in the ASICs line. That's kind of what they're moving everything to. So they're going to go- companies are moving kind of their default to it's a nice midpoint middle of the road heel to toe drop that i do think works for most people mm-hmm. heel to toe offset has been de-emphasized in recent years some folks are still really focused on it uh, i like to vary it in my rotation just to work muscles a little bit differently well we've talked in the past too in terms of you know that's one consideration but also just the the forefoot rocker that a lot of these shoes are building in yes. can, can affect that as well in terms of how that actually rides. So just the number itself doesn't make a big difference, but that in combination with the forefoot rocker and as well as the overall cushioning makes a huge difference in terms of what one eight millimeter shoe feels like versus another. It's a critical point. Nailed it, Phil, because if just take a, Ho- a Hoka Clifton, which you run in at mm-hmm. a five mil drop, But with that rocker and the construction and geometry of that shoe, it's actually offloading at the Achilles, the the spot where you often have issues and a a really good ride for you. But if Uh, I were in a shoe that was a relatively flat profile with five mils, I couldn't run in it. Yeah. 
Because this is 45 millimeters at the heel, that stack is above the world athletics limits for racing. Frankly, I don't think that's a concern for this shoe. One, most runners aren't going for the win or the cash purse. And so stack height is almost irrelevant to competition as it's not being monitored for the masses. And perhaps it's only a concern on an individual basis, uh, yielding somewhat of a a very minor ethical dilemma of deciding if you want to abide by those racing standards, if they're not really meant for you. And then two, it's not a carbon plated racer. So the elites aren't going to go for this anyway on race day. So ASICs didn't have much concern to that 40 mil number in the construction. Uh, We have two foams in the midsole on this fill, and these are two top-notch compounds that ASICs is using across their line. It's a combination of the supercritical flight foam blast turbo. It's used in the ASICs racing models from the Metaspeed series. And And that's on the upper part of the foam there, right? That is. So the top layer closest to your foot, it's kind of a creamsicle, maybe cantaloupe color on my pair. Uh, It is nearer your foot and you have a larger chunk of the turbo foam. Because of that, as in the Metaspeed Racers, which also use this, it's a very stable ride because it's not a super squishy foam. Mm-hmm. even despite the absence of a carbon fiber plate here. And that stability is buttressed by the large surface area covered by the base of the shoe. And then the layer at the bottom, that's maybe a mint color, thinner layer, mm-hmm. that's your Flight Foam Blast Plus as used in the Nova Blast. Okay. On the outsole, we have Ahar Plus for better traction. As some have noted, there can be a lack of traction in the Super Blast baby brother, the Nova Blast. There is a decent amount of exposed foam here as well. And that's important. So I'm showing Phil here on the screen. That has to be a weight consideration as to the reason this is strategically placed on the outsole. But I will say uh, I do some running on a loose gravel path And in some of the gaps in the exposed midsole foam on the bottom, I've picked up some rocks at times, um, just some smaller pebble type stuff. Nothing that's bothersome at all, but I've just noticed it there at the end of a run. My pair is a size 11 and a half. It does seem to me to run just a touch long. I'm, I'm comfortable in the 11 and a half. I might've been able to get by with an 11 in this one. I do that in a few models. So maybe could have done that here. This is a unisex shoe. So women's sizing is 1. 1.5 sizes off from the men's. That design, you know, when you're on a unisex last and maybe a shoe that's a half size big, the women might be more likely to size down the half size than men. Just read almost like a two sizes down. It it potentially could be. It, uh, in the unisex sizing on the box, it's going to say like, you know, eight slash nine and a half right there. But you might even if you are, uh, uh, let's say you are, are on the unisex sizing in, in a women's nine, you might need to go down to an eight and a half, just a consideration. But I overall, I'd say for most people, it's going to be a fairly honest fit. I am now about 100 miles in on the Super Blast. So these are my impressions. First, 
most importantly, it fits a niche that I desired in my rotation. And for that reason, I absolutely love it. It is high cushion, lightweight, durable. I can eat up a bunch of miles with my body feeling good. And it's a shoe that I tend to grab in the morning when I'm looking at the lineup in front of me of options that I have. It's one I want to run in. So, so let me ask you this. Go ahead. What, what runs are you typically grabbing this shoe for? Great. Given the timing of getting a hold of this, you know, this is a, a 12-1 release. So it's only been on the market for about a week. I was able to get to it maybe a week or two before that. Mm-hmm. I had a limited array of types of runs I was doing because we had a marathon coming up yeah. and I have not run since the marathon. I have used it on easy days. I put it in a medium long run, about a 90, 95 minute run at a steady clip that it performed quite well in. I've used it in a sense of pure recovery. I had it in for those shakeouts in the last days when we were in California before the yeah, race. For shakeout. Yeah, I, I have worn it uh, for strides. I will come back to your question in, in a little bit, Phil. Uh, just let me add one more thing because I... I what you're leading to might be one of the drawbacks, but to build on that, seeing it and wanting to run in it and what are you pulling it for? In some, I might end up being an outlier on this one. And I I wouldn't be surprised if I am. I think a lot of people are going to like this, but there's a couple drawbacks. I might be an outlier, but I would put this on my very, very short list for favorite shoe of the year. Uh, And and there's a difference between favorite and best, but for me on the favorite of the year, I can't think of something that's come out this year that I like more in my running. Interesting. Okay. Now to continue with the point you were making, there are two negatives to this shoe or two biggest negatives to me. One is going to be the price, The, the price tag at $220. It's a lot to pay. And for many people, it's especially a high number given that it's not that plated fast racing option. Mm-hmm. And two, I'm not sure it's great at any one thing. To go back to what you were asking me, uh, Phil, okay. it, its versatility might also be its greatest weakness. Yeah. Because I'm paying $220 but I'm getting kind of a Swiss army knife shoe uh, that might take a certain purchaser, $220. Someone might be expecting more for like a high performance perspective, but I will compare it to some other stuff that's in the similar price range. In, well, in well, before you do that off that price range, I know you've had it for a hundred miles or so, but what kind of durability do you expect to get out of it? Right. At 100 miles, it can be a bit early to tell, but my sensation here with feel and my prediction, if you will, of what's to come, this might be the shoe that gets, of anything that I knew this year at least, or updates this year, it might be the shoe that gets me the most sheer mileage. I think it's stability. think the amount of cushion to it the way it feels now versus the way it felt the first day I wore it, I could see this getting more mileage than some of the competition. Okay. Okay. So despite the weight, 
given how substantial the shoe is in general, and I say substantial intentionally, not bulky, I'm not doing really fast stuff or track sessions in it. Mm -hmm. I'm not racing in it. Although after my performance in California, Phil, I might as well, because what does it matter? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the four foot rock is, is subtle, which I like, but that, that also, I like having it there, but it's not aggressive. And so that also means it's not like this super energetic peppy ride that maybe the shoe could be. Okay. I'm also, again, not sure that was their intention. I do believe the masses would like that though. So that might be for future iterations. The most direct competitors are the Nike Invincible and the New Balance Super Comp Trainer. Uh, Those are both really nice shoes. I I like, enjoy running in both. They are at a slightly lower price point. But again, I would pay the little bit more because I've found the Invincible, although super fun, great shoe, to not age quite as well because that softer ZoomX foam just doesn't tend to wear evenly as it compresses Mm -hmm. for me as a supinator. The Supercomp trainer from New Balance is substantially heavier, more than two ounces heavier per shoe, although you don't notice it that much on the foot. That's an important caveat, but it's also plated. And I didn't want a plated shoe for this position in my shoe rotation. I have the concern about long-term mechanical impacts of training in a plated shoe daily, and that's the impact on foot strength in natural range of motion in my stride. So again, it checks the boxes for me. I love it. I will get another pair. And I haven't said that about everything that we've reviewed that I- After being in this pair, would you you get it again? I would. And even stuff we review that we like, we don't always say that. I would get Mm -hmm. this shoe again. And not just I would, I will. I will get another pair of these. For a lot of folks- Spending $140 on a pair of Nova Blasts is a great option if you want to try something in the current ASICs line. This is a bigger investment, and that is most likely going to be the sticking point. If we didn't know the price tag, if all the shoes cost the same, people would be eating this up. We'll see how the public feels about it at 220 And as a final general point, Phil, the Superblast is another step forward for a brand in ASICs Mm -hmm. that once ruled the roost, then really fell behind for a number of years and didn't respond to the forces reshaping the running market. They're currently on the rise overall, both with their training and racing models. Oh, 100%. If you are interested in getting a pair of Super Blasts, this is a perfect time to introduce a new presenting sponsor who will be coming on board with Seconds Flat for the new year. We've been blessed, absolutely blessed, to work with Run In in Greenville for so many years, but you'll be seeing the show logo slightly change soon as we have a new opportunity. And I'm fortunate now to be near family and working with the dedicated and thoughtful folks at Columbus Running Company. You can visit columbusrunning.com to get all the details on their training and racing programs, their brick and mortar retail locations, and as well access to 
The ASIC Super Blast just dropped on December 1, as I mentioned. It's a very limited release, so you can get access to them in-store, online, and we are stoked to be joining forces with Columbus Running Company. Phil's still connecting us to the upstate of South Carolina and Western North Carolina, where our show routes have been. And on a personal note, that area will always have a special place in my heart. I plan to visit regularly and remain part of such a vibrant and supportive running and outdoor community. If you're there and looking for help in in person, of course, see the good folks at Run-In in Greenville and Simpsonville. But if you are out of the region or if you need an online option, you'll be hearing from us uh, about columbusrunning.com in the future. So uh, really excited to be working with them. Okay, Phil, it's race recap time. I've been dreading this all week, man. <laughs> Gosh, I know. <laughs> Let's get into the autopsy. I know this. Uh, on the death certificate, cause of death will read Sacramento slaughter yeah. because we got obliterated. And it's an interesting thing too, Phil, because... It wasn't like we were unaware of what we were getting into or unprepared for what we were getting into. I've gone there before and had a really good race. So yeah. it, well, it was just we, the day. We had the preview episode, but even the day before the race, we, we spent some time and drove the course and got an idea of what to expect. And going into it Sunday morning, I, I was prepared or I thought I was. We got to the line in a positive frame of mind. Mm -hmm. and ready to put what we had out there in the race. Uh, briefly, I did not finish. That is never the outcome we're looking for. One that is difficult to stomach for me because I have a mental framework in which I don't want to allow myself that out, that option, because there's always a point in a race where you reach that moment of truth and it gets so challenging and you, you have to make the decision to reach down inside yourself and dig in and find something else to muster what you need, whether it's to have a great race or just to finish a race and be proud of that effort. But frankly, I had to make a decision that was in my best long-term interests. You know, you worry about health uh, overall. And so I stepped off. I am not 100% sure where, because it's a bit of a blur, but somewhere uh, between mile 17 and 18. Phil, you were uh, you know, targeting a, a low three-hour performance. Uh, yeah, perha so perhaps a perfect scenario was a Boston qualifier. No, so I went in, you know, we had talked the night before kind of about strategy and some pacing ideas and where we thought my fitness was and, you know, went in targeting really around 315. And to be honest, going in, I thought that would was a somewhat conservative measure and, and realistic but and even the first bit of the race that felt easy unfortunately i was sorely wrong around mile 17 or 18 when the wheels started to come off and just those paces dropped from a consistent 7:30 to eight minutes and then quickly to nine and the cramping and the walking and down mm. to 10 minutes or so and came in somewhere around 334 or so still so not, not the day i wanted I'm happy for you that it took till mile 17 because I had about one really good mile <laughs> and, and a, a comfortable first 10 K. Mm -hmm. But I was so hot even by a mile in, and maybe that's a sign of, you know, other 
health concerns at the moment and just not yeah. feeling well. But I tore those tearaway gloves. I like, why did I even put them on? I threw those yeah. things off so quickly. And I, I was water over the head at the very first aid station. Wow. It, okay. it was not an exceptionally warm day. It was quite chilly and damp about an hour, even a half hour beforehand. Rain stopped, winds calm. It warmed up though quickly. It was not out of the range in which you could run a really good race. Mm -hmm. But for me, it, it just was not that day. So rather than beating ourselves up about all the things that went wrong over that 26.2 miles, let's do two things. One, okay. race organization, race volunteers, execution of the race corrals. It's top notch. Oh, it's phenomenal. I can't think of anything that beats it. There's places that are on par. Boston does that exceptionally well and others do also, but for a, a particularly for a, a self-seated start, the mm -hmm. way they organize where you're going to enter different corrals based on what you think you can run, how people are for the most part, pretty aware of what they can do and the uh, amount of space they allow was, was really well done. That was kind of my takeaway you know, standing around the start line and, you know, towards the end of the races, the groups behind me continued by, but just across the spectrum, I mean, the organization was fantastic. The, the aid support and the volunteers were fantastic, but as well, just everybody that was there to race and not to knock on folks that are, are doing a marathon to complete one, but everybody that was there to run was there to run well. And that, yeah. you know, everybody in those certain time gaps knew that they belonged in those time gaps, at least for what they thought they were going to do. And everybody, probably not explaining this well, but looked like they knew what they were doing. Yeah. For lack of a better description, it's a racer's race. Yes. It's people who take their experience seriously, regardless of how fast or less fast they are going to finish the race. No, that's a perfect way to put it. And then, so the other thing for us to focus on, Phil, is what we can take from this for the future, because we had an experience that most, if not all marathoners will have at some point. Calvin Kemptum, sub 202 debut at Valencia is such an outlier. It, it is almost a one in a million that I'm sure will lead, frankly, some people to question the validity of his performance. Mm -hmm. But most folks are going to go through what we went through in some form in a marathon, regardless of when and where, because that's the challenge and also the beauty of the distance and then yeah. figuring it out. And just seeing you smile, as I even mentioned that, Phil, we both share that understanding that on the few days you nail a marathon, there isn't much better. Mm -hmm. Well, and the, to me, it's the challenge of kind of the unknown as you get out to 18 and 20 miles that even if you've done everything correctly to prepare, you still don't quite know what's going to happen. But the magic that when that all comes together, you know, that that can be. Then to add to that, what a beautiful opportunity we have to learn from that experience and get better. We are blessed with this tremendous chance now to reflect on what happened and to carry that forward into a better next marathon, but also just being better runners in general. Yeah. And as I've said many times on here, better people, 
This yeah. sport teaches you lessons for life and it can be cliche and I don't care because it's so true. It does it in a way that so many other activities cannot begin to explain. We ran into that proverbial wall in CIM, but we can take something away from it so that hopefully we don't next time. So like any two grown men should, Phil and I that night after the race <laughs> were in a we're in an Airbnb in twin beds in a room that was probably designed for little kids with nothing but volumes of Hardy Boys books uh, in, <laughs> in between us and began our reflection on what are the big takeaways. Just <laughs> it was just uh, whispering sweet nothings to each other in, right. late in the Sacramento night. We had a couple big ones for you, Phil. So you want to go ahead first and, and touch on a couple of things that you can build off of from this experience? Yeah. So I, honestly, I think the, the biggest takeaway was, and you reminded me of this so many times through the cycle, and it was painfully brought home in the race result, but the idea of know, know what you're training for. Mm-hmm. And that kind of in this buildup, you know, I, I, I did shut in about a month before. Two weeks prior to that, I did swim run North Carolina, which was, you know, a five hour day of, of swimming and trail running and hiking, which they were both very fun events and went reasonably well. But in the middle of a marathon cycle, certainly weren't ideal. Because you know, from my end, I, I thought the biggest challenge was not necessarily the cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. In that the, the paces where I was running you know, the first mile felt silly easy. The first five miles felt comfortable. You know, 10 to 13 miles felt like I was just rolling and like with you guys on a Saturday morning. But then as I got out beyond two hours, just the the pounding really was the, the big limiter and that I didn't have the, let's call it muscular durability in my legs to continue to hold what, you know, potentially my cardiovascular system was prepared to do. And those, those two races really, you know, again, while they were fun, they required a little bit of taper going into, they required a little bit of recovery coming out of, but they also interrupted some of those longer runs that I, I needed to kind of harden myself. So I think through looking back through my training logs, I had maybe, I know I had one, potentially two runs of about two and a half hours or so, where I really think you know, having four or five runs of that length would have been very beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well, just overall, you know, my weekly mileage averaged about 40 to 42 or so, which with extra long runs, I think would have been enough to, to hit around a 315. But bumping the mileage up would have certainly made me that much more resilient in those later miles. And then the other component of that was unfortunately out of my control, but about three to four weeks before the race, I came down with a pretty bad cold that you know, ended up with me not doing much running over what would have been the biggest weeks of training at the end of the cycle. And if I think about the biggest thing that I could build into for the next training cycle, it's making sure that the priority is on what I'm actually training for and creating the space to get those necessary workouts in. Yeah. Those two tune-up races you did, we tried to strategically incorporate them as best as possible, as we've discussed in a previous episode. But you're right. 
both those days are then eliminated for road specific long runs because mm-hmm. the running you did there was on trail. And it also impacts the days, the, the long runs around those events yep. and certainly reduced your ability to improve as you re- referenced it, your durability. A durability is a, a topic that's seeing a, a moment in the ex-phys uh, literature we're lacking a bit of understanding about what really yields durability. Uh, but one thing that a lot of the research suggests is simply putting your body through those longer efforts. Mm-hmm. And then at, at some point in those longer efforts, maybe deeper into your training when you're more fit, subjecting your body to specific efforts late in that run. Based work. Yeah. Could be keys toward durability, and that over time, the more marathons you run and the more marathons you train for, it could have uh, positive gains in your durability as a runner. But you're a classic example, Phil, of just the neuromuscular fatigue is what led to the breakdown late in the race, right? 100%. And even as you know, those later miles where, yeah, I was walking some and cramping and that sort of thing at points I could get back to a comfortable stride you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't near where the race pace goal was but you know it wasn't cardiovascularly demanding to hit that I just didn't have the the strength in the legs to be able to hold that for any length of time at that point yeah you may have had the engine but not the chassis to to complete this in the time necessary as we reflected on that night in bed, <laughs> you have a good understanding of that. And, and now it's, it's your decision, right? Moving forward, how you apply that. There are going to be real life balances that occur yeah. that, that we know might make this hard at times. We've discussed some potential adjustments to the training calendar to make this more doable for you in the future, but it's going to come down to your willingness to one, find a target that is truly the target you keep your eyes on. And then two, execute the plan that gets you to that point. And I do believe if you can get those two variables together, you are nearing a a very good breakthrough performance. Well, and that's, that's what kind of keeps me coming back in that, you know, really I've never run a marathon that I would consider was well executed. And while the fitness has been building and, and the mileage is, is pretty strong, just the challenge of trying to put all that together on one day really keeps me hungry to, to do this again. I have put together a handful that I would consider very well executed. And I'm still coming back because I believe I can do those faster, yep. but also the last couple for me have, have not gone yeah. well. And that's a, a point of reflection now for me and my training. Overall, the, the training was good. Maybe I should have kept more hills in as I always respond well to that. And, and there's a lot of gradual up and down on that course. But for me now looking back, it, it's fairly clear. The most important factor was I just started to see some easy runs adding up toward the end where I felt a little more sluggish. Mm -hmm. And, and then I look at what was happening in life, all the things going on. And 
And I just burnt the candle at both ends and it took its toll and I was holding it together and probably had fooled myself that I was ready to run a great race. I knew I wasn't at that like super primed 100%. This is going to be lightning fast, but I, I was close because I put together some really good long grinding workouts in the last like two months and certainly solid sessions those last couple months. Yeah. I certainly had the aerobic fitness and perhaps a a couple of those were a little too big, but nothing I would beat myself up about and maybe a small tweak here or there. The bigger thing was that I was on that razor's edge and then the final few days just put me over the edge. The, the travel was difficult. The, just the amount that first day was like a 25 hour day. By the uh-huh. time we got you at the, from when I woke up to when we got you at the airport and got you back to the Airbnb, I was absolutely exhausted. You can speak to that. You saw me. I looked like a zombie for most oh, of this weekend. Well, I, I... Going into the planning, I thought it would have been a simple solution for you guys just to meet me at the airport, you know, at 9.30 local time, but that was me not even considering the time change, and, and it ended up that travel day for you guys was a essentially a 24-hour day between when you woke up to leave to when we finally went to bed that night, which two days out from a marathon is not, that's when you need to be sleeping and off your feet and resting. Yeah. Not at all for you to blame yourself there, Phil. They're beyond your control. Your flight was then late as well. Yeah. You know, that's that stuff added up, not feeling well in those days leading up to it. That lack of sleep, it was all icing on the cake, really, because you know, I'm putting together days when I look back of oh, I'm packing up my my home and right. Well, you moved what less than two weeks before. Right. I know it was the weekend before. I didn't sleep at all that weekend either. Packing stuff up, a lot of travel, too many nights over that last month where my second run, which I normally will do, so it's not like it was an overtrained thing, but it was in the sense that I was doing them too late based on the yep. work schedule. And then I was eating too late and I was getting to sleep too late. And I'm really quite regimented about that stuff normally. And that was throwing things off. I just think I was physically and psychologically just overtaxed and asking a lot out of myself. I could feel those demons kind of creeping in and talking to me the last few days before this race, but I, I was so focused and just consistently telling myself, and I did this through the race as well, stay positive and believe. That was kind of the mantra for me. Anytime this thought comes in, just stay positive and believe. Even when we got into the race and I faded back and tucked in with the women's group that was going for the Olympic trial standard at 237. And I rode through halfway with them. And so I got halfway in just a tick over 118, which was slower than I expected to be there. Yet the effort I had expended was higher than what I thought I could. And I had the thought there, I don't know that I can run another one of these in this time. But my immediate response to that was just believe, just hang on to this group. Just run with this group as long as you can. As an aside, so happy for our buddy, Kyle, one of the guys who was there running with us. Oh, who had a, yeah. Had a day. He, he ran with that group as well for an amount of time and then went on and, and broke free, went ahead and PR'd. And so really, really happy for him. And Beautiful finish line celebration for him too, as he crossed the line. And I'm assuming it was vomit. 
Oh, yet again. Yes. No, nobody does a finish line celebration like the big cat. So but re- <laughs> really, really proud of him. A, a truly great guy and truly deserving of, of that effort. And uh, Absolutely. we're lucky to have his uh, friendship along the way for this uh, training and this race. I, I probably just asked too much of myself, but frankly, once you're committed to a race and months out and the training is going really well, other stuff just came up in life and that happened. And to me, this is a classic example of what we talk about for everyone who listens of showing yourself some grace. Yeah. That performance stunk. I'm not at all happy with it. My level of disappointment as I walked off that course is probably as high as it's ever been, not just in racing, but like in any sport experience in the entirety of my life. Uh, I was near tears in the disappointment that brought. But as I said to a friend of mine who sent me a message afterward, I was also near tears in the support I got from so many texts afterward of people checking in on me, some of whom probably thought I was dead because you know that my timing chip just stops at like 25K and they're sending me texts. And as an idea of how just ridiculously fatigued I was, I went back and fell asleep I never saw you guys at the finish and it was hours before somebody finally woke me up and I didn't even know where I was, Phil. I I, asking to get you for dinner that night. Yeah. I mean, I was just so exhausted and that's been lingering this week as I recover. Show myself some grace, lesson learned. Now it's the decision I've taken, like you, taken this whole week off. I will continue to take it off. The the earliest I'll get back out will be next Monday, which would be a full week off. Before you get into that, Travis, let me, if you don't mind, let me ask you the question of what, and it may have been forced, so it may be an easy answer, but thinking about kind of as my race unwinded, the point of when do I back off and just take it easy versus when do I actually step off the race? Like, Mm -hmm. where was your calculation there? Yeah, man, the calculation occurred incredibly quickly and I did not have much control over it. Yeah, I noticed the group I was with start to drift away from me. And then I thought to myself, wow, my effort is super high. As I mentioned to you later, I I don't look at the heart rate on my watch, uh, but I will occasionally afterward in evaluating an effort and it's risk-based. So who knows how accurate it is, but it had my max heart rates at the very end of that race up in the one nineties, which is... way too high for not even 30K into a marathon. I started to kind of just unwittingly drift left off the course because, you know, we're on a major road there, but it had a median. And so everybody was racing on the right side of it at that point. And I started to find myself drifting into the left lanes. They were closed, fortunately, but I got over there and I'm not exactly sure when or why or how, but it was within a few seconds. And I almost immediately told myself then there's no, just stop. There's no way I'm coming back from that. Um, I walked and then I had like the brief thought of get going again. And I just knew this, this is not a healthy decision to get back on that course. And to me, that's when you pull the plug on a, on a race, when your health is in danger, Or if you think there's potentially the opportunity to pull the plug here because I'm in great fitness and I might be able to come back quickly and get another shot at it. 
we're not going to get another shot to fly back out there anytime soon. But that's a potential reason why an elite runner at CIM might make that decision and then come back and get Houston in a few weeks. It's the Rupp example of Boston in the rainy year in 2018 and then coming back and winning at Prague. Uh, We've seen it. That, That tends to be why I would consider pulling the plug. Now I weigh if I get back into something quickly because I know I have fitness or if I'm better off just resetting and waiting. But most significantly, I haven't made that decision yet now, five days later, and I don't plan to make it in the next few days either. Yeah, I was out of time for that decision. Yeah, we're going to get to a point of clarity. I have things I'm eyeing, whether I decide to go at it again soon or wait till later, but uh, I'll, I'll hold those decisions until I know that I'm 100% ready to go again in training and then determine, as we've discussed before, I like to get myself fit first, know that I'm ready for something and then pull the trigger rather than putting an artificial timeline on, I have to go race this thing in X number of weeks. Well, and that's what we talked about in my case as well, a little bit Sunday night was I had toyed around with doing a spring marathon and you know, that's still somewhat undecided, but you know, coming back from this, instead of putting something on the calendar, you know, artificially, like let's put in just a couple of weeks, a couple of months of solid, consistent training, yeah. and then, then make the decision of something. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, if nothing else, Phil, we had an incredible breakfast the next morning. I had what I will assert is the best cinnamon roll of my life. I'm giving free advertising right now. If you are in Folsom, California, go to Julian's Bakery, get the cinnamon roll. Yeah. You'll thank me later. Phil, last things. Would you do it again? 100%. Yeah. Number one, just the, the fun time that we had out there as friends and getting to meet your parents and just having an adventure together. You know, to me, that was kind of why I signed on in the first place that, yeah, I wanted to go have a fun time, run a fast time, excuse me. But more than that, just going through this journey together with you guys. And even not even the weekend, but the months leading up to it of sharing runs together, looking forward to the race, planning the race and just hanging out there together, you know, for the weekend was, was worth it overall. And then from a specific race perspective, absolutely. That was so well organized. You know, like you said, it was a, it's a racer's race. It was still a relatively fast course. The weather was still relatively good. They know how to put on an event for folks that want to go out there and run hard. So I, w- I would love to be back. Yeah, the shared experience there was was beautiful, Phil. Uh, you're right, and the lead up to it was as well. I, I would go back as well. I-, I think I probably will. I mean, I might go back next yeah. year. I don't know. I But it'll be under very different circumstances too, because in addition to all that other stuff I had going on in life, I took upon myself the kind of coordination and planning for all of us to get out there and where we were staying and, and all, all those logistical things. That was another thing that was too much weight because uh, it didn't allow me to focus on what I needed to execute. Uh, Frankly, it it was a piece of like what I would like to do as the organizer of a trip, not the racer of a trip. Uh, So I would do it again, but under very different circumstances, I would consider where I had success before in just like staying near the start line, eliminating so much the travel, 
when you're actually there, but also then better travel planning for the time when I got up to fly out, coordinating with other folks on when they're going to get there. And then of course, you're hoping that you're not having all the other life stress involved in right. the lead up as well. You just try to block it out and run the best race you can. That, that's all we could do. So yeah, I, I suspect I will be back. Before we sign off on a more serious note, I'd like to take a moment to honor the 81st anniversary of the Pearl Harbor bombing, which was earlier this week. Mm -hmm. Only six survivors, now all 100 or older, attended this year's ceremony in Hawaii. The Department of Veteran Affairs statistics don't keep an exact track on how many Pearl Harbor's Pearl Harbor survivors remain. We know the, the number is now very small. The overall war statistics su uh, suggest that uh, less than one in 60 veterans who served in World War II are still living before the, those folks are gone. We want to thank the members of that greatest generation for their, their devotion and their service because today that allows Phil and I to do silly things like fly across the country just to run a marathon and to beat ourselves up about it and then to share in the bounce back reflection and how are we going to get better as if those things are such existential moments in our <laughs> life. But to know that what the men faced at Pearl Harbor over eight decades ago puts in perspective their sacrifice, the joy in our lives and our ability to share it with you today, what that really means. So a continued thanks to, to all those who, who served. I cannot uh, say thank you enough. That's right, Phil. We'll be back soon. We'll regroup. We'll get emotionally right. And we'll <laughs> move on to the next race. And we will see you in the next episode of Seconds Flat. We, as always, would love to hear from you. Seconds Flat podcast at gmail.com. That will be mile 137 the next time that we're with you. Phil, can't wait to do it again. Heal up. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right. Sounds good, man. Take care, everybody. Have a great week.